This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. The title of this episode is 500 Years, Part 2, The Gift. We left off last time with the close of the Diet of Worms, where Martin Luther informed the august assembled officials of both civil government and church that he'd not recant what he'd either written or said because his opponents weren't able to refute him with Scripture. From the now-emerging Protestant perspective, Worms was a turning point from which there was no going back. Reading of the events in that improvised hall in the German town of Worms, we get the idea that Luther issued his memorable declaration of devotion to Scripture and conscience, then strode from the room to the cheers of the supporting German nobles, the chagrin of his imperial and Roman opponents. And that was that. The trial was over. But not so fast. Luther's speech, in fact, did not close the Diet. His words weren't the last spoken. Emperor Charles V's secretarial spokesman, who was conducting the inquiry, replied to Luther on that April day in 1521. He deserves also to be heard. He rebuked Luther for making himself superior to the historic church councils that had already ruled on several of the issues that Luther declaimed. Regarding Luther's arrogance in supposing that he could sit in judgment on the church, he said, quote, In this, you're completely mad. For what purpose does it serve to raise a new dispute about matters condemned through so many centuries by church and council? Unless perhaps a reason must be given to just anyone about anything whatsoever. But if it were granted that whoever contradicts the councils and the common understanding of the church must be overcome by scripture passages— we will have nothing in Christianity that is certain or decided, unquote. That secretary raised an important point, one that Roman Catholic apologists would keep asking of Protestants in the decades to come. Luther had famously said that his conscience was held captive to the word of God. The secretary came back with a reply that in effect said, well, people who want to put their own spin on the meaning of Scripture have been claiming that for a long time. What makes you, a humble German monk, better equipped to interpret Scripture than the august luminaries of church history? If and when personal conviction replaces the official authorized position of the church, derived not by one person's opinion, but a collection of several experts, well, then the Christian religion will shatter into bazillion pieces. And in some ways, that was a prescient appraisal of things to come. On the next day, April 19th, while Luther was locked in private disputes with representatives of the emperor and the pope, Charles had a document that he'd written read out to the gathered German nobles. He reminded them that he was descended from a long line of faithful defenders of the faith from Germany and Spain, Austria and Burgundy. He wanted it made clear that He was no novice in the theological disputes that he had heard at Worms. He wasn't at all impressed with Luther or his position. He said, It's certain that a single friar errs in his opinion, which is against all of Christendom and according to which all of Christianity will be and will always have been in error, both in the past thousand years and even more in the present. He made it clear that he understood his role at the trial as being called on to join his noble ancestors and defend the faith against an attack 
that threatened to irreparably splinter it. He at least got that part right. The church was never the same after the Diet of Worms. As we ponder Luther's address, looked at in the last episode, and these responses by his imperial and ecclesiastical opponents, we realize what was really at stake at Worms. Once again, history provides us 2020 vision. The Western Church was now split into two great camps, Protestant and Roman Catholic. That breach has lasted for 500 years. But it also presaged the rift between civil and ecclesiastical power. Civil rulers of all ranks broke with Rome in becoming Protestant. Others, choosing to remain Catholic, realize now how much Rome needed them. A more subtle idea was introduced at Worms that took a while to germinate in the soil of Europe, but once it did, well, it would have far-reaching consequences. It was the idea, expressed so articulately by Luther, that the individual person, no matter what their social rank or economic status, possessed a dignity and a conscience that trumped the man-made rankings of church and state. That idea was regarded by Charles and his nobles as a supremely dangerous idea, far too dangerous to allow. Heaven forbid that a peasant would see himself as possessing the same value as a baron or a layperson as a cardinal. Why, that would set the whole world upside down. And so it did. Let's back up now in time to track how that particular Martin Luther arrived at Worms in April of 1521. He was born 30 miles northwest of Leipzig in the Saxon mining town of Eisleben in eastern Germany in 1483. So he was nine years old when Cristoforo Colombo staggered ashore in the New World and the Moors were finally being pushed out of Spain. Europe was rapidly emerging from the lethargy of a long, out-of-date feudalism that had hampered its growth for centuries. His father gave Martin the best education in law that the Luther family could afford, hoping that he'd become a town counselor, a position from which to ride to comfortable prosperity. But as Martin matured, so too did his sense of self. His ambitions turned from worldly success to a desperate longing to know that he met God's approval. But the more that he reached for it, the further away it seemed. In 1505, at the age of 22, he made good on an oath that he had made to God and entered a monastery in Erfurt. That oath was made during a freak lightning storm that terrified Luther, and he swore that if God preserved him, well, he'd become a monk. He didn't die, and so Luther made good on his pledge. This gives us an idea of the sober integrity of the man. Living in a cloister as a young monk, we'd assume that Luther saw himself as earning points with God. After all, that's certainly the way that most monks viewed it, but not our Luther. It seemed like every good deed that he did, every meritorious work that his superior suggested, only served to increase Luther's sense of guilt. His personal confidant was the godly and wise Johann von Stoppitz. Luther regularly lamented his deplorable sinfulness to his elder Stoppitz, who tried several tactics to help the earnest young man rid himself of his crippling sense of guilt. But nothing worked. So Stoppitz suggested that Luther distract himself by immersing himself in the study of Scripture. 
He then arranged for Martin to take an advanced degree in theology to the end that he could begin teaching at a university and put all of his nervous energy to good use. So just before turning 30, Luther began teaching scripture at the new university in Wittenberg. The demands of being a monk and a professor certainly gave Luther much to do, but it wasn't enough to keep him from his quest for personal holiness. The more he wanted it, the more elusive it became. He knew that he was supposed to love God, but his increasing frustration was coming out in a loathing for the deity that further afflicted his soul. He was on the verge of an emotional breakdown. The gospel promised forgiveness, but the church said that penance was the way to expunge the soul of the sense of guilt. Why then, after availing himself of literally every form of penance the church prescribed, did he feel more guilty than ever? It was as Luther taught his students in Wittenberg the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans that the light began to come on for him. I say it began because while there was indeed a moment when it seemed that the switch was flipped, the implications of what Luther discovered echoed through his soul for many months afterward. You see, Luther was concerned with being righteous before God. Following the understanding of the church of his day, he assumed that righteousness was something that a person secured by doing the prescribed good deeds. Oh, and hey, if you couldn't produce your own righteousness, well, you could buy something called an indulgence, a special certificate offered by the church that drew on the surplus of righteousness that the saints had laid up in heaven for needy souls. This surplus was called the treasury of merit. But as Martin read the words of Romans chapter 3, he was confronted by a totally new idea of righteousness. The Apostle Paul says that the righteousness that God's looking for isn't something that we produce. The only righteousness that qualifies us for heaven is perfect righteousness. And there's only one who's perfectly righteous, God himself. So God gives us that perfect righteousness when we put our faith in Christ. It's a gift. It's not a reward. And the gift is received by faith, not earned by works. Here's what Luther read that utterly transformed his thinking. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as an atoning sacrifice by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because, well, in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Luther later said that as soon as the realization came to him that it's not his righteousness, but God's that saves, suddenly a slew of other passages came flooding into his memory, affirming and adding further insight. It was like a key had been slipped into a lock that opened the door to a mansion of blessing. All of Scripture took on a new color, scent, and flavor for him. 
Prior to this revelation, that is earlier in his studies in Romans, Luther had struggled with a passage in chapter 1 where Paul in verses 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Martin says that that perplexed him and began him thinking that his understanding of righteousness must be off. What was this reference to the righteousness of God? And how does faith issue into justification? Well, with the insights from chapter 3, now he knew. Righteousness is a gift that God bestows by faith. But this isn't what threatened the religious establishment of his day. Luther acknowledged that there were many others who had taken a spiritual journey similar to his. Men like Augustine in the 4th century, the Bohemian reformer Jan Hus a century before Luther, and the Dutch pastor John Vessel a couple of decades before. No, it wasn't gift righteousness that Catholic officials were concerned about. It was Luther's insistence that the church had gone off the rails in many of its everyday practices. Those practices clouded the glory of a soul set free by God's grace, and he was determined to do something about it. What brought him to the attention of those who'd eventually come out against him was his assault on the sale of indulgences, by which not a few church officials were getting rich, including the Pope. And so we'll pick it up at that point in our next episode. (laughs) 